first episode of the purple notes unveiled podcast i'm richard cole the amari in amari communications and this is a brand new show that will talk about the music and artistry of prince uh, different associated artists like the time vanity six Shilly e as well as albums movies videos uh, unboxings, there'll be everything within the purple musical singularity on this show. And I'm very excited to do this. Um, I know it's been a while since we've done like the Amari Purple Talk podcast, which was the original podcast that would talk about all things Prince. Uh, but this is a brand new show. Uh, you can listen to it on your favorite podcast platform. And there is also a video version uh, that you can see exclusively on Patreon. So become a Patreon supporter. And there will be segments uh, from each episode that will be on YouTube. So don't forget to hit like, subscribe, hit the notification bell uh, to keep up on all of that content as well. All right. So with that out of the way. Uh, let's go ahead and start with our main topic of the show. And the main topic this week is how to make a good or actually how to make a great Prince Netflix documentary. All right. So for quite a number of years, uh, we know that there is a Prince documentary in production uh, it will be shown on Netflix. However, um, there has been no official announcement from Netflix, no trailer, uh, no announcement of a release date as of yet. Uh, the Prince Estate, um, they don't seem to be excited about this documentary for whatever reason they're not. I don't know if it's a money thing or this was done under a different regime of the estate. Um, I guess we'll eventually get information about that at some point or full details at some point. Uh, but apparently the net, the Netflix documentary is going full steam ahead. Um, like I said, don't know what its state of completion is. Um, hopefully we'll get something in 2024. Um, that would be cool. But like I said, no official announcement from Netflix or the Prince estate as of yet. So with that, um, there has been a lot of speculation as to what would be included in this documentary. Um, I'm assuming it's going to be in multiple parts, you know, hopefully like a seven, eight episode, um, you know, of maybe an hour and a half, two hours each of content. Uh, we do know the director is Ezra Edelman. Um, he is known for the award-winning documentary O.J. Simpson Made in America. Uh, that is a documentary that I have watched, although I have not actually watched the conclusion. But what I have seen 
it you know i think he's capable of the job he's also done some 30 for 30 episodes for espn uh the most notable is the one about the los angeles lakers and boston celtics rivalry that's another one great one to check out so i do think he's capable of it i think that's the right pick uh but we do know that originally uh Avery duvernay was supposed to direct but uh fell out over i guess creative differences so that's basically all that we know at this point um but Again, you know, what's going to be included? What is it going to focus on? Is it going to focus on the artistry? Is it going to focus on the human being? Is it going to sensationalize, you know, the, I guess, some of the stereotypes and the myths about Prince that have, you know, snowballed over the years? Uh, will it sensationalize his tragic ending and not focus on so much on the artistry or you know um or just him as a human being you know that you know he was human and is great and is talented and is so much he has given us uh you know falls prey to weaknesses just like any one of us could uh but anyway one of the things that i wanted to talk about on this particular episode is what i think should make the perfect Prince Netflix documentary or things I would like to see or maybe even address some concerns as well. So let's go ahead, dive in to reason number one. And reason number one is that the man and the artist is the central focus. Um, You know, I want to learn something, you know, especially, you know, something I didn't know. Uh, hopefully something like that will come out in the documentary or answer some long time questions I may have. Um, you know, what was the reason behind a lot of the mystique, you know, where, you know, like my favorite two of my favorite artists, um, Marvin Gaye and John Lennon. To me, they are the most open book artists Um, And not to say that any other artists aren't open book, like they're not accessible uh, to the public, whether it's in interviews or you don't have to guess what's going on in their music. It's spelled out for you, you know, but not dumbed down. Um, It really opens up and lets you in to either what they're thinking, what they're feeling, and you really get a stronger essence of who they are as people. So for me, those two artists, Marvin Gaye and John Lennon, best exemplify that. Where with Prince, you know, now back when I was 15, 16, 17 in the 80s, and then you had Dirty Mind and Controversy in 1999, you know, he didn't do a lot of interviews. And the few interviews, you know, there was all this misdirection and, and cryptic answers and deflected answers. Because, you know, we do know that what he wanted everyone to focus on was the music and that's fine and that's cool but I think it didn't help like I said given the visual image a lot of the you know him trying to say hey listen to the music listen to the music the way he went about in explaining that or trying to get you to focus on the music you know looking back a lot of times it didn't really come across so But over time, you know, even though even in later life, there was still sometimes cryptic answers, but he did do more interviews. Uh, To me, I think he was more transparent, uh, especially in probably one of his final interviews, uh, the one that was in Ebony uh, that was done by Miles Marshall Lewis. You know, to me, that was like my favorite. Uh, because it really he really was peeling back layers, even though he tried to kind of have that interview silenced, uh, like as soon as it was published. And but still, I think even as he got older and then with his memoir, even though, unfortunately, we only got uh, 50 pages of that. You know, to me, I think he was starting to become more open and more transparent and starting to let us get a look at the human being. I think he was starting to 
become a little bit more comfortable with that. So what I'm hoping that this documentary will do is, again, focus on him as a human being, him as a man, him as the artist, you know, the motivation, the work ethic, you know, some stories behind the music, you know, um, so, you know, and like I said, even though there's been tons of books written about him and lots of things you can read and you can, of course, obviously check out the music again, you know, hopefully I'm surprised and get something that I don't know or I didn't know or things that I might have wondered about over the decades, maybe fill in some blanks or give more context to certain events or key events or relationships with different people, you know peel back those layers and I hope to learn something and that would help me enjoy the documentary more. So that's the first one. Number two is a complete balanced narrative. In other words, don't shy away from certain controversies, but at the same time, don't sensationalize it. You know, I don't want this to be like a, a TMZ piece or like a National Enquirer piece or, you know, a shock and awe, you know, in a negative light where it just focuses on the death and it takes key events and tries to connect dots in a way that it's like, oh, well, see here, he did drugs here. Or, yeah, see, that led to his downfall there and focus only on the downfall. Um, now, I know. Again, you know, with uh, Ezra Elderman you had a subject with say OJ made in America where, yeah, you couldn't get around that part because that is part of the story. But what I did enjoy about uh, the, most of the episodes that I saw was that it was peeling back the layers of OJ Simpson, like what was making him tick, you know, during his college days, during his pro football days during all the endorsement days and his rising celebrity in Hollywood, you know, how was that affecting him? What was his mindset? You know, was, you know, did he feel a connection with his community and things of that nature or why he didn't connect with his community and wanted to be part of this other world, you know, that, you know, again, led to a multitude of things going wrong in the end. So I thought that in that particular case, that was a fair and balanced assessment. So it didn't just sensationalize. It really helped you understand where things started and how things ended. And that's what I want to see with this, you know, have a narrative, of course. Um, but, you know, don't make it a gloss over piece, you know, make it, like I said, fair and balanced. You know, so like I say, don't be afraid to tackle some controversy, but at the same time, don't let that controversy be the be all and end all of the narrative of that. So from there, we're going to move to number three and number three, multiple episodes to fairly cover his entire life and career. Now, I know a lot of maybe not so much um, followers of my channel, but a, you know, segments of the fan base are probably worried that they're just going to focus on Purple Rain because that's the breakout mainstream success and that it's only going to interview just the revolution or it's only going to just interview people in the 80s. Well, that's fine if you devote, say, episode three or episode four to Purple Rain in that era. Um, now, you're not going to escape it because the, the weird thing about the fan base is that people cling to their favorite eras. And there are some of us that, yeah, we have favorite eras, but we came along as early as possible. Some have been there since for you myself. I've been there since dirty mind, but I have 
gone with him on the journey through every single album. And while, like I said, some albums, later albums are great. Some I wasn't on board on, but it had like one or two or three good songs on it. I still bought it. I still supported it. Um, I realized long ago you weren't going to get the same album from this dude twice. So if there was an album like, okay, well, I'm not really feeling that album. Usually maybe seven to eight, nine times out of 10, that next one was the one. So like say I loved musicology. Um, I like 3121, but I like it better uh, just kind of over the last two or three years. I enjoy listening to it more than I did in 2006. Um, but Planet Earth is an album I wasn't on board on. Uh, the Lotus Flower MPLS, which was after that, was, yeah, there was a bunch of stuff on that particular project that I enjoyed. Some of it, not quite, but I enjoyed it much better than Planet Earth. And then 2010, I enjoyed. Artificial Age is one of my favorite Prince albums of the 21st century. It's probably not the most favorite album of the 21st century. Um, but... You know, I can understand the apprehension that this documentary is, you know, because they're going to try to go for the, a, a wide stream audience. Those with memories of Purple Rain and only associate them with that, that that would be the selling point. Now, granted, <clears throat> if you know, when the trailer does come out, yeah, you can utilize some of that to draw people in. But again, Hopefully, there'll be multiple episodes. Um, probably one of um, pre-Netflix, pre-streaming. Uh, probably the only time I've seen that wasn't a Ken Burns documentary on PBS. The only time I've seen like a multi-episode format was the Beatles anthology. And... I think because we've had such outstanding documentaries on Netflix or Hulu, um, you know, virtually all the streaming services have some type of documentary that is, you know, multi-episodic that you get more time to concentrate on whatever the narrative is that that director is trying to convey and you get the beginning, middle, and end, and everything is kind of given its fair and balanced context in those documentaries. So I'm hoping that it's a, you know, like a seven, eight, nine, <laughs> you know, episode, 12 episodes at the most um, documentary. Um, I would be probably slightly disappointed if you know like like the get back documentary was perfect um they were each one was about two hours long i think more than that maybe two or three i forget how long each episode was but they were like i think you ended up with like an eight hour documentary by the t by the time that thing ended and there's still like a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor still um but in Prince's case, I would probably be disappointed because with the thing with the get back, that was an entire month of the Beatles working on what ended up being Let It Be. And with Prince, those three, like I said, that could be on Purple Rain by itself, almost, you know, for somebody to do an expanded thing like that. Um, but yeah, I would want like a 12 episode format um you know again maybe hour and a half two hours each episode to really cover every aspect of his career and of course that middle section will probably be purple rain to sign of the times or even love sexy in that you know maybe episodes three and four but like i said there's still a lot of career left you know before Purple Rain and even after. 
So I'm hoping each era or each significant era gets its time to shine, you know, and especially to um, the whole name change, the whole slave period, the whole um, symbol era. Um, that should be a good two hours or two episodes in of itself. You know, maybe the first episode focusing on the struggle and then have that following episode focus on the journey to emancipation and then some of the ripple effect or the fallout or the, you know, the step up or the step down from there. And then again, still have four or five episodes left to go. So who knows? Hopefully that will be, you know, a multi-episode documentary. So moving to number four. Number four, interviews relative to their access to Prince during his lifetime, but being okay for, say, someone that was only around in the 80s that was significant, that could provide some context at the end when it kind of, you know, when they kind of recap or. You know, unfortunately, if they have to discuss the end, then, yeah, you know, to get perspective on what they were personally thinking based on how they knew him. If they managed to stay in touch in the years since the 80s, all the way up until the end, or if they had a falling out in the 80s or in the 90s, you know, and maybe some observations that they may that they may have had have a recap and kind of provide some commentary or provide something closure, uh, whatever the narrative is going to lead to for that. But like I said, there's those in the fan base that probably feel that, you know, they're going to discuss something in 2022 with somebody that was only around up until 1989, you know, or they left the camp in 1995, you know, that, again, for the sake of name recognition or to appeal to a certain demographic of the fan base, you know, again, I'm hoping that this documentary is fair and balanced and it covers the entire journey, but allowing people that were actually witness to certain things going on during their tenure with either working with Prince or being in a relationship or whatever the situation is, you know, employee, you know, employer employee relationship or band member relationship, you know, have those people discuss things as they witness them. And hopefully, you know, that would bring, you know, a lot of strength to the narrative. It would help the narrative flow to have those eyewitness accounts. And then if you have, maybe if you need to connect some dots, then here's somebody from 1985 commenting on 1985. And then here's somebody from 2012 commenting on something from 2012. And it's kind of like, huh, those two thought the same thing. So I wonder if there's any truth to that. And maybe if, like I said, don't want this to become like an investigative piece. But like I said, it just depends on the narrative. And again, if you're connecting dots, whether, you know, never mind the sensationalism, but just what made him tick as an artist to connect certain dots. Oh, he was consistent from here to here. Or here was a certain drive here, but something changed him to where, you know, for better or for worse, something changed and you have this person to kind of eyewitness that change. And like I said, if you want to connect dots, if there's similarities or differences between somebody from 1985 versus somebody from 2012. And then there you have it. Um, so hopefully, like I said, it, it won't you won't see Lisa and Wendy like, oh, yeah, well, I think in 2014 he was thinking this. But, you know, he really didn't call us on the phone uh, we haven't talked to him on the phone since uh, uh, 2009, you know, something like that, you know, so hopefully we won't 
see a lot of that. Um, but number five, and this will be the final thing that would make the perfect Prince documentary is the music. You know, again, you know, you can focus on images, you can focus on the private life. And, and I'm sure people that aren't deep cut Prince fans, they'll come in just on that. You know, say if, if they're casual fans or people that haven't paid attention to Prince since the 80s or the 90s and they're drawn into it because it's like, oh, well, Prince is, is no longer here. Then what happened? Well, maybe this documentary will focus on, you know, will explain what really happened. And again, the sensationalism, the girlfriends, the wives, the band members. Um, but really at its front and center, in addition to the man and the artist, the music, you know, focus on the music. And I mean, every single facet, the, the drive to get to for you, um, because that first album was over budget and didn't sell as well, then the pressure to create a hit with the second album, then to take that creative risk with Dirty Mind, then to do something like Controversy, then 1999, you know, that album was struggling. It was a hit. Eventually, Little Red Corvette helped it cross over, but that album was a struggle. And then to gamble to do a major motion picture, which um, there's going to be uh, a Patreon exclusive video that I'm going to work on titled What If Purple Rain Flopped? Because, you know, that was a gamble. And like I said, there's a lot of people that hate on Purple Rain because of its success. And again, you're thinking too linear. If you take that piece out, if Purple Rain flopped, then... Warner Brothers isn't going to gamble on this dude anymore. They're not going to, you know, or they're going to pressure him into a hit. You wouldn't have gotten around the world today. Or if you did, it would be a different album than what we're used to, what we're used to hearing. So, you know, um, you got to deal with that success because, you know, even for him, that success gave him the freedom to be in the position to get to your favorite era, you know, to have the millions to build a Paisley Park complex in the first place, um, to have that success really kind of frighten Prince to the magnitude like, well, I'm going to sabotage that success by creating Around the World a Day, which then leads to Parade, which leads to Sign of the Times, you know, and each album springboards to the next album. Like I said, for me, I'm there for the journey. Yeah, it's cool to reminisce about being 15 listening to Dirty Mind. It's cool to reminisce about being 15 listening to Controversy. It's cool to be to reminisce about being 16 listening to 1999. It's cool to reminisce about that. But trust me, I don't want to go back <laughs> to those days. They were, you know, there were some good days and there were some bad days, but as John Lennon says, good to be older. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I was there for the journey. So it's kind of, you know, where, okay, yeah, I was, I like Graffiti Bridge as an album. Was disappointed in the movie. But here comes Diamonds and Pearls. You know, that was a little too commercial for me, but I still enjoyed it. I still played the heck out of it when it was out. Um the symbol period from 93 to 95 that's probably my second favorite era next to the 80s so you know the documentary should focus on those things and keep the music front and center and i think that all, and hopefully if they do it right that music can also help tell the story because as Prince was so proud to say, if you wanted to get to know him, listen to the music. And there are some revealing things in a lot of the songs. So hopefully 
those songs are used to push the narrative forward as well. So if you have, say, a certain inspiration speaking about, say, their time together, and since unfortunately we don't have Prince to give his side of it, or since he never got to finish writing that autobiography, well, then you have the songs, you have the music to push that narrative let those let that music tell that narrative so those are the five things that i think should make a print a great prince netflix documentary but what do you think do you think um do you have some of those same expectations uh what are some of your apprehensions about the documentary um do you think it should still come out despite the prince estate being sort of against it but there's nothing they could do to stop it because the contracts have been signed the money has been spent (laughs) um you know what do you think leave me a comment and let me know your thoughts and from there we're going to move on to and we're bringing this back from the old amari purple talk days we're bringing back the artist spotlight And that would be a segment where we just highlight an associated artist, uh, associated act, uh, protege, whatever you want to call it, and talk about that artist. And so today, my focus is going to be on Jill Jones. Um, One of my first memories of just kind of hearing the name it goes all the way back to tina marie's it must be magic album and there's a song on that album called the battle of cradle and rob and me Uh, but if you look at the liner notes of that album uh, you see background vocals by jj Uh, but you also see um, in the songwriting credits, a co-writing song credit for that song, the uh, Battle of Cradle Rob and Me, and it and it's a it's a catchy little it's a catchy tune. I I like that album. Um, you know, it was probably the actual first Tina Marie album that I owned. Um, the one that made me become a fan was Irons in the Fire, and actually became a fan of Tina Marie and Prince the same day thanks to a friend of mine that brought uh, Dirty Mind and Irons and Fire over to use my component set to to make a dub, you know, uh, make a cassette out of. Uh, So that was uh, the It Must Be Magic album was the one that I actually went out and got myself. Um, And yeah, like I said, I enjoyed it, you know, um, bought it off the strength of Square Biz, but I digress. but reading the liner notes, then it was like, okay, well, JJ, okay, that, okay. I I was always fascinated, like, you know, who were the background singers? What did the background singers look like? Who were the musicians? Um, what kind of musician, you know, what kind of instruments are they playing on those things? Um, so, you know, I was a liner note junkie. So fast forward to the 1999 album and reading the liner notes on that then i see the name jj pop up on those as well and i'm like well what if that's the same person because usually if you read enough liner notes um you do see some reoccurring people like as far as musicians um like with uh stevie wonder um nathan east is a famous uh session player um you see him on stevie wonder albums And also kind of the Jacksons, like with Destiny and um, Triumph on those albums. So I'm seeing the name. I'm trying to connect the dots. Like, is that the same person? That's cool. So she worked with Tina Marie. Now she's working with Prince. Cool. That'll work. And lo and behold, come to find out, yeah, that's the same, the same person. And I think the, the icing on or the cherry on top was the appearance in the 1999 video. I was like, okay, yeah, all right, I'm, I'm in, I'm sold, 100%. And then you fast forward to the appearance in the Purple Rain film, 
And yeah, it was kind of kind of messed up how her character was. <laughs> I felt bad for her character. I mean, you know, I get the story of Purple Rain. I get why the main characters, who they are and why they are and all of that stuff. But I did, I felt like really sorry for her in that video. Cause like, it's like, she just couldn't catch a break with Prince in that film. Uh, but it was cool that she was part of the Prince camp now. And I guess, I, I can't remember if there were ever rumors about her working on an album. Uh, like I said, you see a lot in the background of like, it's a lot of Prince albums. Uh, there's, um, appearances on the glamorous life uh we know that she provided offstage background vocals for vanity six so she was definitely a key player in you know that that prince era that you know back when things were magical and mysterious and you know it it was you know really cool in those days um but fast forward to about 1987 like right around the summer 1987 and it's myself and of course uh you, you've heard him on the show quite a few times uh the artist known as alex b uh was co-songwriter of mine and keyboard player in my group chaotic beat um you know we used to just like dissect records you know and we always went for like the obscure kind of records you know we always listened to the the stuff that was hits obviously uh but to kind of like have a leg up creatively you know we listened to b-sides of things or you know we would find a group or a record by a group that you know maybe nobody else was hip to but it was something on it that we liked like oh okay well i like how they're playing guitar on that so, you know, I wonder if I can do something different or improve on it or be somehow be influenced by it. So, you know, we were always getting those. Um, remember earlier that year, I uh, remember he got the Madhouse album on vinyl. And, you know, we didn't know. We just saw, you know, had Paisley Park label on it. But it was like all this jazz. And it was like, OK, well, that's cool. You know, and we, you know, back then we thought we were probably the only ones that knew about it. Uh, come, thank God, that's, a, you know, a lot of people love the Madhouse stuff. Um, but fast forward to that summer, uh, you know, we run across her debut album. And I remember seeing it was on CD, but back then CDs were ridiculously priced. And as much, I think, let's see, no, because I didn't, I didn't even have a CD player till like Christmas or something like that that year so but it was like oh these cds are so expensive when you know you could get the cassette and by then we had kind of phased out vinyl you know in favor of cassettes anyway um so but that's how i ended up with this i did have the cd at one point i don't have it anymore uh hoping to track a copy down um but eventually i'm going to get a vinyl edition of this um but i know myself alex b we were very elated that she dropped an album and i mean the songs on it and again reading the liner notes um i think what was different from this um as opposed to say the time as even some of the shilly e stuff um these were actual, you know, the the liner notes said, you know, co uh, co-written Prince and Jill Jones. We thought she had a hand in it, at least with the lyrics anyway. Um, come to find out <laughs> that, you know, it was Prince that did everything as we discovered bootlegs later. <laughs> but I tell you, um, this was a, one of those personal albums where, like I said, it wasn't on the radio a lot. Uh, I know when I moved to California, like, um, I think For Love was getting some radio play. Uh, and that was cool. But, like I said, before, like the summer of 87, you know, it felt like an album that just belonged 
to me. You know, nobody else knew about it. Nobody else really wanted to know about it. So it was cool to have that. And like I said, I love the songs. I love the lyrics to a lot of the songs. And like I said, just happy that she was getting her own album. Now, the downside, you can kind of tell that this was an album that kind of came out a little too late. Like if this dropped in 85 probably 86 even i think this would have been a serious hit like a major hit like top 10 even top you know top 20 maybe even top 10 uh whether it's r&b or pop i think this would have but by late 86 into 87 you had where hip-hop was grabbing a stronghold on music uh, you also had New Jack Swing to kind of come in and it was kind of slowly pushing that what we kind of knew was the Minneapolis sound. It was kind of pushing that out. And I think the only people, I mean, Prince was always in a lane by himself. So, you know, it, it didn't matter. Of course, he still had hits, even though maybe the albums themselves, even though they were successful, they didn't get past a million in sales or barely two million in sales. Um, but that New Jack Swing and hip hop was kind of pushing that Minneapolis sound out the way. I think the only ones out of Minneapolis that really honestly survived it was Jam and Lewis. Um, maybe Andre Simone because he was producing Jody Watley at the time. But I think everybody else, it was one of those things where the releases were just very personal if you were a deep cut Prince fan. You know, like I said, this is a very personal album for me. You know, like I said, not too many people knew about it or it was cool to, you know, talk to a music fan about it, you know, where other band members, you know, you would be hip to this album and it was cool to discuss it with them. Um, and it's kind of regrettable that we didn't get a follow-up to this record as well. Um, of course, you know, there's been some drama. It was drama to get the first one out. Like, they started recording this, like, what, 84? <laughs> 1984? And it didn't come out till 1987 because it was kind of like on again, off again, which was kind of synonymous with their relationship and stuff. So, you know... Unfortunately, circumstances led to there not being a follow-up album. Um, but, you know, she has released albums um, kind of over the last, maybe what, decade, almost two decades now. Um, they, I think they're still on streaming, so you should be able to check those out. Um, there's one in particular called Two that... Uh, was getting some buzz, you know, it's, and it's different, you know, so if you're going in expecting to hear Prince-like sounds, no, she's doing her own thing, you know, which is cool, you know, that's, you know, her as an artist, she's expressing herself as an artist. Um, kind of the last two things, there was a couple of singles that were released, uh, one immediately, or, you know, a little after Prince had passed, called I Miss You and I, that's a very beautiful song That's um, I've heard it once because um, I had bought the download on uh, Apple and then I saw the video and you know it's it's moving because I remember that and then Morris Day had um, had a tribute song as well. So those things were really, they were, they were beautiful, but they were hard to listen to. Uh, but that is a beautiful track. Uh, if you haven't heard it, uh, check it out. Um, one of the last singles that she's put out is called Not Another Love Song. And that's a beautiful one too. It, it kind of gives me like Tina Marie ballad uh, vibes in it, which I enjoy. Um, but that's another one to check out. So, you know, just because they're not working, you know, never, you know, fully 100% in the Prince camp, or if they're not capitalizing 100% off of the Prince sound, you know, they're expressing themselves as artists. Um, like another, we'll get into another episode, like F Deluxe, how that album was to me was 
the family, but mature, you know, so you didn't go back to the same sounds from 1985. They sound like the family now, you know, 2011 when that came out. Um, but yeah, you know, um, I know she's involved in a lot of different business ventures. Um, a lot of those ventures aren't necessarily tied to music per se, uh, but definitely an artist, you know, check out stuff post prints. Uh, like I said, check out, you know, background vocals on a lot of the classic Minneapolis sound albums. Um, also the classic Tina Marie album or, you know, just pick up a copy of It Must Be Magic and check her out. Um, and peace to her, um, peace to her cat. I know the cat has been on in ill health and, you know, um, if you're a pet owner, you know, that's family kind of. And so, you know, peace to her. Glad we're dedicating this segment of the show to her and, you know, by all means, like I said, check it out. Uh, hopefully one day we'll get to see a re-release of this, uh, along with some of the extended mixes. Uh, so hopefully we'll see that from the estate one day and we can go out and support Jill Jones and the album. So Jill Jones, thanks for all the music and we miss you on Twitter or X or whatever that mess they call it, but by all means, you know, find her on other social media platforms. And like I said, again, thanks for everything. So from there, we're going to move on to the album Spotlight. And with that segment, we're just going to take a particular, whether it's Prince album or Protégé act or someone related to the Minneapolis sound, like say, like an Alexander O'Neill or SOS band or Jody Wadley will focus on those albums for a little bit. Um, but today I wanted to kind of expand more on Diamonds and Pearls, uh, the remastered edition. Uh, so I did a video for YouTube, uh, kind of giving my initial thoughts of that album on streaming. Um, I know it's kind of weird that they did it so early. I mean, it's cool for us as fans to get it so early, but I guess they must have looked at, look at how many people pre-ordered the box set. So yeah, let's just go ahead and <laughs> just dump the album on streaming in the Dolby Atmos version. Now I don't have anything Dolby Atmos. Um, it's a little out of my price range, but you know, who knows one of these days I'll, get one so it'll be nice to have stuff like this because i've got like the some of the beatles stuff where it has the blu-ray and it has like the 5.1 mixes or the dolby atmos mixes and like i said i don't have anything to play it on or you know speakers that would be worthy of that i mean i can pop it in a blu-ray player but you know sound it's it, it'll be what it'll be but you know, hopefully one day, but at least I'll have this stuff. So whenever the time comes, then then I'll have something to actually play in that particular case. Um, but like I said, listening to it uh, at first, I couldn't really tell a significant difference, uh, especially with the first maybe two or three songs on it. Um you know, I didn't like a loudness factor. I didn't notice a difference or anything. Um, but it wasn't until I got to Cream. And then maybe most of the songs after that, especially kind of towards the end from uh, Jughead all the way to Live for Love, that I was beginning to notice a significant difference in, you know, the range. It's a wider range in sound. Um there are certain nuances that are more prominent, uh, whether it's a, a layered vocal or background vocal, uh, maybe some percussion or a guitar part or a bass part. Um, like I said, so the surprise in that was Jughead, because it's a song that I think a lot of us kind of skip over. Um, but I found myself really, really 
enjoying the groove of that more because it's like instead of just drums bass i hear everything you know it's the the mix is expanded somewhat to where you get all the little nuances with the instruments that kind of like it sweetens the groove quite a bit and it's like wow i like this as a groove why don't i like this as a song um, but it's occurred to me because of what I'm hearing instrumentally and what I now know from reading an interview with Tony M, his approach to his rap vocal. He was influenced by Chuck D. And you can kind of tell there's that tone. It's like, Daddy Pop, lead the band. And, you know, you can kind of hear Chuck D doing something like that. Bass, how low can you go? Kind of that that kind of tone in the voice. But the music, because it's a dance song, it's like, well, okay, who else had a big hit, you know, with dance songs? Um, and I can point to two. Um, one being, um, I can't think of the name of the group, but they in the Spike Lee movie, um, School Days, uh, The Butt, you know, the, it was a go-go band. Um folks just leave me a comment remind me who they are that band um but you had that song and then you also had Humpty Dance with Digital Underground and I was thinking like well you know this would work better if you had like maybe if you had a Shock G or if they got one of the other Game Boys in the group to kind of do like a Shock G Humpty Hump type vocal, you know, maybe not necessarily in in um, in um, losing my words, imitate uh, Shock G or Humpty Hump, but just kind of have that tone, maybe that softer tone, that comedic tone, um, because it sounds like yeah, Public Enemy's doing a dance song, which would be cool, but you would have to have Flavor Flav lead the rap. You wouldn't have Chuck D doing that you would have and there's the thing you know if they could have gotten like a flavor flav to to wrap that part i think it would have gone over better it would have worked much better as a song um but there's other tracks um insatiable um i've also done a review on the vault early take of insatiable and how I love everything that goes on in that. Yeah, I can see why they made the editing choices that they made in the final mix for the album version. Uh, but again, listening to the album version uh, with the remaster, again, there's that range and it brings out certain nuances with certain instruments that you have. It, it gives you more of an emotional connection where the vocals and the instruments are better separated to where I feel like I have more of an emotional connection to the song now than I did. I mean, I always liked it as a ballad. I always called it like an adore class ballad. I used to, after door would measure every Prince ballad against that. And if it stands up to me and to my ears, then, you know, it's worthy as a ballad. And that was one. I really enjoyed that. And I liked with the final mix of that. And I guess with the production instincts, you know, you had a lot of Keith Sweat that was being played in that period. And it, it kind of lends itself with that new Jack Swing versus the early take where you hear it's more Marvin Gaye in that early take. But when you get to the final mix, it's, you know, everything's in place to where it competes with whatever Keith Sweat was doing on the radio at that point. So, you know, I get that, but I can hear that a lot better with the remaster. And it's pretty much consistent with everything else on that album. It's like the the range, the separation between vocals or background vocals, layered vocals by Prince, um, the instruments, um, better separation with the drums um, versus the other instruments. So the drums aren't as overwhelming anymore. Um, you So you really get not only Michael Bland's power drumming, but you also get a lot of the finesse licks that he does as well. Uh, you can hear those a lot better now. Uh, so that's it in a nutshell with um, Diamonds and Pearls, the remaster 
version. I'm going to do a review of the remastered CD when I get the box set at some point. Uh, so look forward to you know hearing that soon. But yeah, I I enjoy it. I'm beginning to enjoy it more a little more now than I did back in 1991, but I played it a lot back in 1991 too. Um, it's not one of my favorite Prince albums per se, but again, that's what I'm going back to that. I was there for the journey. So it's like, while it wasn't my absolute favorite Prince album, there were a lot of things that I enjoy on it. And like I said, I played it a lot <laughs> in 91 going into 92. So I don't know. So I'm looking forward to hearing that. Looking forward to the remaster. Looking forward to the vault tracks or hearing the rest of the vault tracks. Uh, but what do you think? Uh, are you still excited? Have you had a chance to hear the remaster? What are your thoughts on it? Uh, did you own the original CD? Um, and how do you compare the two? Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll do a comparison video. Uh, the streaming version versus the original CD. And have that be a Patreon exclusive. Let, I'll think about that and work on that soon. But other than that, leave me a comment and let me know your thoughts. And that brings us to the final segment of this episode. And what we used to call it back in the Amari Purple Talk days was the Prince Wishlist. Uh, here we're calling it the Prince Estate wish list, and basically what it is, it's an album, a box set, a video, anything that we would like to see the the estate endorse along those lines. You know, music or video uh, that we would like to own, like a Blu-ray of a live concert or a Blu-ray of say all of his music videos um live albums um certain legendary albums that are in the vault or you name it so that's the prince estate wish list and this week this episode it, it will be the triple threat tour cd blu-ray set or separate standalone releases for each one a la the Hendrix estate <laughs> so the triple threat tour although it was never officially called that that was just kind of a nickname with either the press um, maybe that's how the fan base remembers it um, it was the tour in support of the 1999 album and the reason it was the triple threat, because you had Vanity Six and The Time as the opening act for that. And that was a tour, unfortunately, I did not get to see. I've seen, I've listened to bootleg footage, seen some bootleg footage. Uh, it's good we have the DVD of uh, Princess Show. I think it's in Houston, that one. Uh, but it's good to have an official copy of that now. Um, but I would like to see a, like a Blu-ray that would have like maybe not that particular show, but a different show, uh, but also include the Vanity Six set and include the time set as well. And have it be a CD, you know, with the CD, maybe disc one is the Vanity Six set, disc two is the time set, Disc three is Prince's set um, booklet with liner notes. Uh, it's kind of hard to do. I know that there have been things like where Bob Dylan has put out like the complete Rolling Thunder tour. And I forget how many CDs and how much that costs. Um I know Prince fans would like to see the equivalent of that, especially with something like the Triple Threat Tour. Uh, but again, I don't know how cost effective that would really be, how many people could afford to buy that. I know that would be something that I would struggle with. I don't think I would be able to afford anything like that. Um, 
but you know but to have like um like with the hendrix estate um they just release single a single show um most of the time it's just the cd um maybe they don't have footage of that particular show just the audio uh but there are things like the live at berkeley uh, of course there's woodstock um trying to think what else is there um there's live in maui that's another one where they have footage of course that one um it's more of a documentary that has a whole lot of live footage um in addition to the live cd set so i i could see something similar going on with the triple threat tour uh where you could have either a standalone cd or a standalone or and or a standalone blu-ray or you could just sell it as a bundle as well and like i said have a a booklet complete with liner notes historical notes um lots of photographs included and i think that would you know you and you don't have to wait till they re-release the 1999 box set which i'm sure they're going to do um, I know there's some confusion about why it's out of print. It's out of print because Warner Brothers can't make any more of those uh, because they no longer license those master recordings. Since 2021, those master recordings um, have been licensed to Sony. So at some point, and I'm assuming they have a plan, but I'm assuming we're going to have to get through Diamonds and Pearls. We have to get through the inevitable Purple Rain 40th anniversary. Um, I'm sure later they'll focus on a later era box set or release. Um, maybe some, like I said, you could put something like this in between box sets. So if you have a later era box set um, and you don't do another one, say for maybe, you know, maybe one of the classic era sets then this is something that you could release like in between time you can just have it and like i said it's standalone so it's a it's a reasonable price point um whether you bundle it with the cd and blu-ray or if you sell cd blu-ray separately um it's still at a price point that won't break a lot of the prince fan base or you don't have to feel pressure to spend hundreds of dollars or a hundred dollars uh, this is something you could spend 20, 30, <clears throat> excuse me, on, like I said, especially if it's a bundle, it's a reasonable price point to do. And like I said, it'll, it'll whet the appetite. You know, I know people get tired of, oh, I always focus on the eighties, but your era will get its representation within your lifetime. We hope, you know, you know, a lot of us first generation fans, you know, we're starting we haven't begun to age out of the market yet but we're kind of getting there you know so you know this would be something to have i think like i said you can release this in between you know if they say do a love symbol box set then then you can release this as a little standalone and then whatever they decide to do next if they want to focus on say musicology or 3121 and do a box set on that do that you know or have a parade box set and then do say you know um artificial age box set then like i said just do this as a little standalone i think you know like i said i think it'll work it's <clears throat> excuse me it's something that i would definitely love to have for sure um but what do you think um what is you know are you a fan of that era um like I said, I missed out on that, but the 1999 era, just for the memories of being 16, 17, um, you had the What Time Is It album, you know, which was probably the best time album, period. And to, to experience that live, um, 
there's a lot of love for the Vanity Six album. So to see them finally get some representation in some of these releases uh, would be absolutely fantastic. So do you share that thought? Um, what's a good idea for a, you know, something that you want me to cover in the next Prince Estate wish list? You know, leave me a comment. And let me know your thoughts. And that is going to end this episode of the Purple Notes Unveiled podcast. Again, thanks for tuning in. If you're a longtime listener of Amari Communications, whether it's Patreon or YouTube, welcome back. If you're a first-time listener, I hope you enjoyed this, and I hope that you give you incentive to become a Patreon supporter. Get your name shouted out in the credits at the end. And also, if you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like, subscribe, hit the notification bell. And until the next episode, create your day and create your life. Peace. Yeah, you got to take yourself higher.